0: Well, it's my privilege again today to uh, open God's word and to expositionally teach you. And so uh, I do direct your attention to the book that we've been studying in Nehemiah, the second chapter. And I'll be reading the first 10 verses and you follow along either in the Bible that you have with you, a device, or perhaps to look on the screen. But Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is going to be the focus of our study today. This is a, uh, a very unusual book in that it uh, highlights um, one, the difference that one man can make. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's exciting, really. Nehemiah, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters, written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my requests. For the gracious hand of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, They were greatly displeased. A common question that often will come to the minds of people is, if God is sovereign, then why pray? Since God is the unrivaled Lord and King of the universe, And since he is ordering all things according to his designs and purposes and appointed ends, then does prayer really matter? God declares in Isaiah 46.10, he says, everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Now, Nehemiah understood this. We know this because of the way he prayed. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he begins by saying, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God. And he also mentions something of this effect in verse 4 of chapter 2 as he quickly prays to the God of heaven. Nehemiah believed that God was enthroned in the heavens and that he rules over the great and over the small and that no one can hinder his plans. Now people will hear this and they will just shrug their shoulders and they will say, well God's gonna do what God's gonna do so why should I bother to pray? God doesn't consult us before he acts. He does not ask for our advice. He does not seek instruction from us as to what is good or what is best. And he is working out everything according to his purposes and his appointed ends for his glory. And... Yes, God is sovereign over the heavens and the earth, and nothing happens apart from his approval or permission or order or decree. But at the same time, we find here demonstrated that Nehemiah believed that his prayers made a huge difference. He freely asks God requests and he presents his petitions before him and he was fully convinced that God was listening to him and that God would respond to his requests. And so we see within this chapter and we will see it again in other places in this book that there's this beautiful balance between the sovereignty of God and the privilege and responsibility that we have to pray about all things in all circumstances. Notice how Nehemiah viewed the power of his prayers in verse 8 of chapter 2. It says the king granted my requests for or because the gracious hand of my God was on me. So why did the king grant the requests? Was it because of Nehemiah's charming charisma? Was it because the power of his speech? Was it because of his winsome personality? Because he was just a good guy? Was that why the king did this? No. No, no, it was because the gracious intervention of God moved upon the will of Artaxerxes to do exactly as God intended. The gracious hand of my God was on me. He was present in this conversation, these circumstances, and it was to God's appointed ends that these things happened the sovereign work and authority of God. And Nehemiah, in all of this, prayed and felt the personal responsibility to present his requests. As Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that we ask that we might receive and we seek, that we might find and we knock so that the door may be opened to us. Now, both of these are present, and it's important for us to see this because I'm fully convinced here in 2024 that God has absolute and total authority to do exactly as he wills in the coming year. And he will be according to his determined purposes. But we have the responsibility to pray in accordance with James 5:16 the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect now it's been said pray as if everything depends on god and work as if everything depends on you the balance of that you what trouble and what uncertainty, what is the need that you have been praying about already today before you ever arrived at church? What is the concern that has been weighing upon your mind and maybe throughout the night hours that you have already brought before the king and the ruler of this universe who reigns in the heavens? Did you, ask, did you ask God to perform a mighty work? Did you, did you ask that he would open a way that hitherto has been closed, that he would open a door? Have you asked him to do that? Is that what's weighing upon your mind? Have you asked him to move upon the mind and the will of others? God, would you you interfere and would you intervene in this situation? Have you asked him to do that? Have you been praying about that? Have you asked him to heal a broken body or to meet a pressing need or to give peace within a family or a marriage or a nation? Have you asked him yet today? Philippians 4, 6 says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. We have the permission and the privilege and the responsibility to pray. And I want to urge you today to boldly, boldly enter into, because you have access, into the very presence of God to present your requests Because we serve the awe-inspiring, great God who rules and is enthroned in the heavens. And Jesus told us, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. He, He informs us that our God is our Father, our Father in heaven, Our father who rejoices over us as his children, who protects us and guards us and provides for us and has plans for our good to give to us a future and a hope. This is our God. He's our heavenly father. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is the question What is your only comfort in life and death? Let me ask you. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. God is sovereign and he's our heavenly Father and we also serve our Lord Jesus Christ and they are watching over and they are providing and they are providentially ordering our steps in such a way that he will purposely interfere and intervene in circumstances and in people's lives and the direction for your life and your future. God is at work. At the same time, we pray about all of these matters, confidence that he hears and he listens and it is effective and it's making a difference. I wanna take time to examine this portion that that I read, one through 10, with an idea of finding encouragement for us. Nehemiah had been praying for four months from around late November, early December to the spring He prayed about this for four months about the state of Jerusalem, the vulnerability of the citizens because of the walls being in disrepair. And and that, furthermore, there was a certain disgrace because they were the people of God, and this was the city of God, the city of the great king. And look at it it's a mess. And all of this led to them being disheartened. And so this was weighing upon Nehemiah, and he was troubled by it to the point where he is fasting and he was praying about this. And and he was wondering if perhaps he might be the one that God would use in order to lead a rebuilding project. And and such a request, such a request seemed impossible. Not only because of his duties that he had to the king because he was the cupbearer. You just don't take a vacation. Say, well, I'll be gone for the next few years. But you can't do that. And, And then the materials, where would he get them? It's an enormous amount of lumber that he would have to take. And, and the, the obstacles just were numerous. And so he prayed about this for four months. And during this four months, God was silent. I mean, there was no change. Day after day after day, he's praying about it. And Nehemiah is getting more discouraged and depressed. I mean, have you been there? I have. Praying about a matter for for actually years. Driving with my wife and I turn to her and I say, you know, I've been praying about this for such a long time. And God is just silent. I mean, all I hear is crickets. Nothing. You know, and, and... There are certain temptations that come while we're waiting. I can think of two temptations that confront us. The first temptation when we wait and God is silent and there has been no change is the temptation that impatience tempts us to take matters into our own hands. Instead of resting in God's timing and working out his wise plan, we take charge. And we say to ourselves, well, God has been silent, so I guess it's up to me. And we launch ahead in something that seems to be wise in our own eyes. The way that we think, as though we know the plan of God and we know what is best, And we go right ahead because God hasn't done anything. And there's been no change. And we imagine that we can see what needs to be done. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you've been tested in, in patience and in waiting and you felt tempted to act. And you have said to yourself that I think this is what needs to be done. Can you say for certain that this is what you should do? Are you certain that this is the guiding hand of God that's directing you to just launch in? Or should you wait? Remember, Abraham took matters into his hands. How did that work out for him? God had given to him a promise when he was 75 years old saying that you're gonna have a son, you and your wife, in your old age. 10 years passed, nothing, no change, nothing. And so Sarah goes to her husband and says, because she thinks that she knows better than God, apparently, And she says to him, take my handmaid in Hagar and sleep with her that she might bear us a son. But this wasn't God's plan. This wasn't God's way. And so they just launched into this. And it was not God's will. They both grew impatient. Have you been praying about a matter and you've been waiting on the Lord and you've been believing that and you've been believing that he is capable of working it out, but but you know, it's how many years has it been you've been praying about this, or how many months, and you've seen no change, and you're ready to take charge, you're ready to launch into something. But can I just encourage you? Can you wait? Please trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Matthew 6:30 says that if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you? So impatience tempts us to take matters into our own hands, but secondly, impatience fails to learn the lesson of endurance. God puts a high value on the the character quality of endurance. And this is an excellent character trait. But you can't learn endurance by reading a book or by attending a Bible study or by talking yourself into it or making a New Year's resolution to say, well, in 2024, I'm going to display more endurance Now, endurance is learned in the crucible of trials and affliction and waiting. Endurance means to bear up under. You know, we would say to hang in there and not quit or steadfastness under pressure or single-mindedness. That's endurance. And a quick look in the concordance at the back of your Bible will show you just the high estimation that God puts upon endurance. For example, Jesus commends the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10 and says, you have kept my word with patient endurance. In other words, good for you. Whereas in the book of Hebrews, that writer challenges the readers in chapter 10.36 and says, you have need for endurance. James 1.4, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Endurance requires us to exercise our faith muscles. It involves holy sweat. We hang in there. We keep on keeping on every day, seven days a week. And Nehemiah patiently endured over months as he Prayed about the situation with the Jews in Jerusalem. And four months later, you know, he's serving the king one day, and and suddenly the king spoke to him and said, You know, Nehemiah, you look really sad today. You're, You're just not yourself. And I can see you're not sick. So, so you must be depressed about something. And, and Nehemiah at once was frightened because nobody was to appear sad in the king's presence. It made kings really nervous when people did that. As though they were gonna, you know, somebody heard a rumor of bad news or something like that. So you never did that. I mean, you could lose your position if you were sad or depressed in the king's presence. You didn't want to mope around in kind of a morose attitude. Oh, you could lose your life even. So he was very, very frightened in that point. Apparently, apparently, um, Nehemiah was unconsciously wearing his feelings on his face. Maybe his shoulders were a little slumped that day, or, or his voice was weak or his eyes were downcast, or his mind seemed to be distracted somewhere else. But whatever it was, the king's looking at him and saying, you know, Nehemiah, you look really sad today. Truth of the matter, he was sad. And begins to talk about this. And what was interesting is that Nehemiah never even imagined that something like this would be the door that would open an opportunity to present his request to the king, something he had prayed to God about. Isn't that sometimes the way it happens? We didn't even see it coming. And yet, it changes so quickly. Sadness opened this unplanned conversation And God was sovereignly interfering with this situation in order to bring it about to what he intended and to his appointed ends. Four months of waiting, four months of just enduring. And Nehemiah had to learn this lesson over this period of time. And this would come in very handy in the future especially when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls, because of the unrelenting obstacles in the trials that would confront him. He learned the lesson of endurance that he used later. Our trials are never wasted, and they always have a greater purpose. So when the king called attention to Nehemiah's sad demeanor, what's interesting is how Nehemiah responded to this, and it shows just how wise he was. Nehemiah chose his words very carefully because he knew that the king had heard rumors years earlier about troublemakers in Jerusalem, and he remembered, he knew the king remembered those reports. And uh, so there was this automatic prejudice against that city and and ever having anything like that happen again. He didn't want any trouble going on in Jerusalem. So if Nehemiah had just kind of blurted out that he wanted to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in order to secure them, Imagine the red flags that would have gone up in Artaxerxes' mind. Any kind of indication that these rebels were up to no good and securing their defenses would not set well. And so Nehemiah chooses his words carefully. And you'll notice what he does say and what he doesn't say. He never mentions the, the name of the city. Instead, what he appeals to is this ancient respect that people had for their ancestors. And the burial ground, the burial ground was really a big deal to kings. And honoring one's fathers was a very big deal. And so you'll notice how he responds in verse three. May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked me, well, what's your request? If it pleases the king and if your servants found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. He's just using good sense here. He doesn't use that trigger word, Jerusalem, the city that has a history. But he very smoothly and very prudently says, the city where my ancestors are buried. For four months, he had prayed about this and had been waiting for this conversation. And I imagine that he must have rehearsed this in his mind again and again. Like, when I have this conversation with the king, what am I gonna say and what's he's gonna say and then what am I gonna say? You know, he must have gone through this whole scenario. And and here it is. And during that time, When he's saying well what am i going to say to the king if he asks he's doing his homework so that he knows exactly how to respond he knows exactly what supplies he's going to need he mentions it he knows exactly how long it would take and so he presents all of this he needs credentials he asks the king for the credentials for authorization for safe passage Nehemiah did his work. He did the due diligence. He, 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 you know, he, he uh, didn't have any guesswork. And a bonus, probably a bonus that Nehemiah didn't even see coming was the bonus was that the king suggested that he have a military escort as he travels back the many, many miles. Praise God for merciful answers to prayer And every request was not only heard by the Lord and the king responded to it, but then the escort was thrown in as a bonus and this was all in accordance. This wasn't just good luck or wow, things really worked out for you, didn't they? No, no, this was the sovereign hand of God that was working providentially. Behind the scenes and in this to stir the will of the king, Proverbs twenty one one says the king's heart is a channel like water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. On that day when he had that conversation with the king and Artaxerxes he says, "Yeah, you can go." Nehemiah's life changed. I mean, he he went from being a cupbearer, which was a pretty cushy job, to now being a, a building project manager with all of the headaches. He, he went from serving in a palace to serving on a construction site and having to deal with his huge enterprise. And God, God's sovereign led in all this, his guiding hand, Nehemiah had prayed about it. Now it didn't mean that the next month's coming up were gonna be easy because we have that ominous forewarning in verse 10 that tells us the Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites. And what does it say? They were greatly displeased. So there's trouble ahead Pray as if everything depends on God, but work as if everything depends on you. Now God is sovereign, the devil is not sovereign. The devil cannot act apart from God's permission. God sets the boundaries. Yes, the devil is the prince of the power of the air, but he's on a leash. And only God does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all of the depths. And only God has unrivaled supremacy and unlimited power and he is unaffected by man or by angels. And his name is Almighty God. Is this the one to whom you are presenting your requests? Is this, this the one that you are entering into his presence by way of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you taking your requests, as Hebrews 10 tells us, with boldness because we have access to speak to God about these matters? If this is your God, if this is the one that you're praying to, then you have permission to ask really big prayers. And don't be surprised if he does even more than you ask or imagine. Now, has the Lord brought to your attention these days some matter that he wants you to be praying about? It's our responsibility and our privilege to take our petitions before him and to do so with thanksgiving. Paul Tripp uh, reminds us that we are dependent and we've been created to be dependent upon God. Uh, in fact Jesus uh, encourages us to be you know and reminds us how dependent we are when he says to pray give us this day our daily bread Th- that tells us it's every day give me what is needed and and prayer is an outworking, of that understanding that I am dependent upon God. And there is, a, there is a clue that tells you if you really understand this dependency. And that clue is a spirit of thanksgiving because when you are thankful to God and you express your gratitude, you show that you understand from whom all blessings flow. So what have we learned today? Well, we have learned to pray as if everything depends on God and to work as if everything depends on you. Would you recommit yourself to a strong and vibrant prayer life? Would you rely upon God's sovereign wisdom that he's working out in a wise way his appointed ends and that we are responsible before him to to pray and to work and to endure and to trust and to wait and to do so with thanksgiving that we understand that God is in charge. So there's a balance. It's a beautiful thing. God's in charge, he's sovereign, I rest in this. It gives me a lot of peace to know that he's in charge. At the same time, don't worry about anything but pray about everything and present your requests boldly because you have access. Let's pray together. Our Father today, as we have considered this passage of Scripture, it's our desire that we practice what we see here in Nehemiah, that even as we're waiting before you, understanding that you have your perfect timing in your ways, and we are to be working and doing our own part, we also understand that you are the one who has your appointed ends and you are providentially working in order to bring them about for your glory. Thank you for the part that you are using us in, the kingdom that you're building here on earth. Even this week, things will confront us that we can either choose to worry or choose to pray about, but God, we're going to present our requests with thanksgiving. And Lord, we present this to you as well. And it's Christ's name. We pray this. Amen.